Good morning, good news. How is everyone? Wasn't it good to wake up to no more new snow? Man. So I was taking Bree, she's got track practice, and I was taking her early, well, early, 8.50 or so yesterday, and I looked at the temperature, and if it would have been just a little bit lower, we could have had a ton more snow. So I'm grateful that there is no more snow, and there's a promise of heat on the way. I'm excited about that. If you would, stand to your feet. Let's read scripture this morning. We're going to be reading from uh, Luke 20, and... We're supposed to be the whole chapter, cover the whole chapter this morning. There's no way we can do that. I think there's like 47 verses. So we will read from 9 to 26. Do your due diligence. Read through uh, Luke 20 this week and just really unpack it. There's so many great things in Scripture. Uh, We'll cover some of that today, but we won't be able to get to all of it. Let's read. And it says, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased at divine dressers, and went into a far... Uh, far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that You say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to every heart, every life, every person directly where they are. God, speak to us, change us, transform us, God, and then move through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And everybody may be seated. Again, there's just so many great things in Luke 20. And there's too much to cover, so we'll only cover this portion. But I just wanted to go back just a little bit uh, to cover some of what Pastor Raphael had talked about. Remember, Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And he knew, he knew he was coming to die. He knew what was about to take place. He knew he was about to offer his life. It was for this purpose that he came to the earth. And remember, he came in riding on a donkey... Into Jerusalem. That was a sign of a king coming in peace. And so uh, 
He, he knew that he was about to experience some of the most atrocious and horrific things, and yet he willingly came in to Jerusalem. We also know that the next thing that he did was go into the temple and begin to overturn uh, the, the money changers, where people were profiting on the worship that was supposed to be given to God. We know that he is coming into his mocking, the trial... He will be beaten, he will be betrayed, he will be mocked, he will be scourged, he will be crucified. And he's about to experience the weight of everything that every human has ever done in sin. And yet he willingly comes in. And so it's, it's remarkable to me at times that I don't understand why the religious leaders can't see what's right in front of them. Why can't they see? He's doing the miracles. He's living scripture. He's, he, he's, he looks the part. He sounds the part. Why can't religious leaders accept it and see it? And so as I was doing some research, I, I came across a Jewish website. And it's talking about their understanding of Messiah. To this present day, this is what this man was writing. This is my expectation, what he wrote, of the Messiah. And it, maybe it helps us understand why they could not accept Jesus. And this is what it said. The Messiah will be a great political leader descended by a pure male line from King David. So they expected him to come from the lineage of King David. Well, Jesus met that mark. The second thing, he is well-versed in Jewish law and observant of its commandments. Jesus told us, he said, I came to serve every jot and tittle of the law, to serve every little component of the law. We know that he did that. We also know that at age 12, he was asking questions to the religious teachers. He was educated. He was beyond. He knew the law and they marveled at him. The third thing they said, he will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. And we know 12 disciples followed him. Almost all of them died. And now there's a billion followers of Christ on the earth today. It also says, this is probably where they get mixed up. He will be a great military figure who will win battles for Israel Freeing the Jews of foreign domination. So they have this picture of what Jesus the Messiah or the Messiah is going to do. And when he comes into town in peace, they wanted a warrior. Did not understand that Jesus was coming to cancel the sin inside of a man's heart. To die for our sin. There's a whole different spiritual battle that's about to take place. And he's turning it upside down. They want somebody to free them from Rome instead of being free from the sin in their heart. And so there's this constant challenge to Jesus. There's this constant trying to trap him. And we see this throughout chapter 20. So Jesus tells this story, and we've talked about this before. Whenever we read a parable in Scripture, Jesus is trying to do three things. He's trying to give us a picture. So he tells a story that people can recognize, that they can probably see physically in that area. So he talks about a vineyard, so everybody can probably imagine that vineyard. So he creates a picture. The second thing, though, as he's going through Scripture, he's trying to produce a mirror 
He's wanting us to look at our heart, to look at us. What is, what is God saying to me? What's my responsibility in this? Can I be honest with myself? And the third thing is, then he creates a window by which we're supposed to look at the world. And those three things, whenever he tells a story, those three dynamics are at play. And so he tells the story and he talks about God is the owner of the vineyard. He is the one who's created all things. But in this story, he is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the people of Israel, the Jewish people. They are the ones that he wants to see fruit. He wants them to, to multiply. The vine dressers are the religious leaders who are supposed to teach and train and cultivate and take, make sure that people are following the law, but make sure they're connected to God. That's the whole point, is that their hearts are right before the Lord and they're staying connected to the Lord. When you read Scripture... When you go through beginning to end the meta narrative from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it is always about man's inability to keep the law, the rules. We always fail. We have sin and Jesus had to come to die on our behalf and help us to stay connected to the Lord. In Deuteronomy, as, as we read through the first five books of the Bible, there are all these laws, but God makes promises if you'll follow me. If you'll obey me, it will go well with you. You'll, you'll be fruitful. You'll multiply. My, my desire is to bless you. But there are all these things that God says will happen if you don't obey. And a lot, a lot of us in our own life, God, it's the same thing. Follow me. Obey me. I have, I have good things for you. I, I want to bless you. I, I want to help you. And it is routinely when we get off track that a lot of the stuff comes into our life. That was a good place to say amen. So we've got God, the vineyard, the vine dressers. And then the, the fourth one is he, he sends servants to, to warn them. Those are the prophets. So throughout all these centuries, God keeps sending people. Hey, turn back to me. Hey, I, I'm warning you. If you don't, if you don't listen, here's all the things that are going to happen. Turn back. I'm merciful toward you. I want to be merciful toward you. Come back to me. And we, we read through scripture and it says some were beaten and some were shamed. Some were killed in the Old Testament because routinely people turned to their own devices, their own hearts. They didn't want to listen and obey God. And the last thing is the son. And Jesus is talking to these men and they know they're having a conversation. He's saying, I know that you want to kill me. I know that you're going to kill me. But I am the beloved son. And it, then he, he says something that really angers them. Because when you kill the son, God's going to take the vineyard from you. What you thought you were going to keep as your inheritance He's going to remove from you and he's going to give it to somebody else. And in their mind, they can't even begin to comprehend that. Because this is the way that it's always been. The law had become a tool for the righteous leaders to execute their desire in God's name. And isn't that most of us? We want to do what we want to do. We just want God to bless it. And that's really the heart of humanity. We have to take ownership of our decisions. Anybody ever been in an argument that it was no longer about the truth, it was just the argument? 
Every married group in here, you know, you're arguing. You can't even remember what you're arguing about anymore. Just want to fight. And they're, they're, this is what this feels like. Is all this time for three years, Jesus is showing them and proving and teaching scripture. And they're trying to, to trap him. And he never falls for the trap. He's always beyond what the, the, the Bible says. They marvel at him. They're astonished at his teaching. We see this pattern, hardened hearts, refusing to acknowledge the truth. So there's three things that I feel like we're supposed to take away from this passage. Because a lot of times when we read scripture and it's about the religious leaders, we always say, well, that's them. We don't always make the connection to us. So number one, God has an expectation that we are to be faithful and fruitful with what we've been given. He came to get a harvest, right? He sent people to get a harvest. And I think sometimes I I love that people attend church, but church is, is us. It's not just a place. It's the way we live. It's the way we interact. It's how we allow God to, to, to operate through us. It's how he changes us. The greatest testimony that we have is what God does in us, not what we say. Because people, you know, some people can play the game. They know what to say. They know how to answer the question. But it's the life that's happening in you and then through that people recognize. Number two, God is so gracious. You read this story and he's constantly sending prophets. He's constantly sending people, hey, turn back to me. Turn back to me. And so sometimes your friends may come to you and they notice something in you and they call it out. And what do you do? You cut them off. Or maybe there's a pattern that keeps coming up in your life and you're going, man, what, this is because of so-and-so and this is because of this situation. And God's going, there's something that you need to deal with inside of you. And this is my way of being merciful to you. How many know that sometimes we lie to ourselves or justify our behaviors? A couple of you. <laughs> Number three, God's, God holds us accountable. For our lives. God holds us accountable for our marriages. God holds us accountable for our children. God holds us accountable for the gifts and the talents and the abilities and the grace that we've received. He does. And we do a disservice to people when we don't hold others accountable. We set them up to stay in bondage. We set them up to experience some some terrible things moving forward. And part of our responsibility as a community, if we love people, is to go, hey, I recognize this. Can, Can we talk about it? Can I hold you accountable? You ever wonder why God hates religion? You ever thought about it? A form of godliness, but not denying its power? Religion is self-justification at the expense of God and others. So it's making you look good at the expense of what God says and what others may say or do. And I'll explain it this way. Um, When we read scripture, do you look at other people when you read it and think of other people? Do they come to mind or do you come to mind? Because I can sit here and I can go, Read a scripture and go, oh, this is definitely Pastor Raphael. I got a list of issues and this looks, this, this is his picture right here. 
And I can do the same thing with my wife. When I'm reading about marriage, I go, oh, yeah, she definitely isn't doing this. And she should be doing this. And how many know that God's good uh, about talking to our heart? So if God's not speaking to you when you read scripture, you may be religious. And here's the thing is we're all religious in some way. That's what sanctification is about is God gets access to our lives and he begins to change us and transform us and to make us more and more like him. That's the goal. So here's the thing. Religious leaders would rather kill Jesus than deal with the truth. That's what religion does. So we can sit in a pew and we can hear a thousand messages, but if we're not willing to embrace truth, the Jesus inside of us may begin to die slowly. And I, I think the other thing is, as we read through this parable, it's amazing to me that the people who were supposed to be stewards of the vineyard think they can become owners of the vineyard. How many times have we taken ownership of our life, ownership of our money, ownership of our dreams, ownership of our relationships and not submitted them to God? And it's so scary because God is really good and he really does have something that is better than what you could ever think or create in your own strength. So I was trying to think, how could we put this illustration in our world, in our context, in Omaha, Nebraska, through Good News Church. And I don't think this went over well in first service, but literally, this is the first thing that came to mind. Because <laughs> I'm going to do it again, and, and we're going to see. So I was thinking, what are we known for in Omaha? Like, as a just something. And I said, microbreweries. There's a number of micro... Didn't go over well here either, but it's true. <laughs> Like microbreweries, there, there are microbreweries that are popping up and I'm going, no, that, don't, that won't work. It's restaurants. So when Chris and I moved to Omaha, the one thing that we were told, man, I still can't believe the microbreweries thing. Nobody liked it. <laughs> it, there, it so when we moved here 12 years ago, one of the things that, that was told to us is per capita. So population versus number of restaurants. Omaha per capita has more restaurants than any other city in the United States. I may be lying here, but that is what I was told. I have no idea. So this, this is the illustration, though, that I want to use. I want to use the restaurant as an illustration, not a vineyard. I, don't, I, I think there's a vineyard by Pastor Mark, but that's the only one that I know of. I, he's over there sampling stuff. No, I don't know. So anyway, a restaurant. And so imagine that God is the owner of a restaurant, okay, in Omaha, Nebraska, and he calls it good news. And then the, he, he, the, the restaurant represents Christianity. Okay, and then you've got the workers in the restaurant, and that's every person in this place. See, there's no hierarchy. What we tend to do is go, pastors are, you know, the leaders, and technically, I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to have stricter judgment, is what the Bible says, because of my role. But every person in this place, according to 1 Peter 2.9, we're a royal priesthood. Everybody here is now a minister of reconciliation, a minister of the gospel called, right, to the Great Commission. And it's more than just being able to quote a scripture verse. Your life speaks. 
The grace of God in your life speaks. The way you, you treat people speaks. The way you love speaks. The way you, you use what God has given you in the context of your job speaks everything. You, you're, you, you speak the gospel whether you realize it or not. You speak what you know about Jesus every day. And the question that I have for Good News Church is, are we being faithful to our community? Are we being faithful to the people around us? Because what this is what is happening. People are beginning to go, uh, there's something different about your church. I've heard about your church. I've heard good things are happening in your church. So if it's a restaurant, we heard you have amazing food. We heard you have amazing service. You treat people really kindly. So God will send opportunities, servants, if you will, to us. The after school program. We've seen good news. What you've done with kids. Can we give you more? Imagine Jenny going down to the, the area around Union Pacific and going, there's hungry people. We need we need people to help serve and, and, and feed these people. And there's tons of other opportunities all over Omaha. But imagine people coming to us as good news and going, hey, can you get outside the church? Can you come serve? Can you give? Can you use what you have to help us? And us go, no, I think we're just going to stay in the church. Because I, I don't think, you know, when, when in, the, in the vineyard illustration parable, I don't think we're trying to kill Jesus. But my concern is that we leave Jesus in the church when we leave church. And I think sometimes we've overcomplicated the gospel to make it something that it's not. And our job is to be the church in whatever capacity we can outside the walls of the church. And there's opportunities everywhere. They're everywhere. I was speaking to uh, the men, and, and I'm so excited about our men. 125 men show up. They're wanting to create culture. They're wanting to, to have connection and community. And they're, they're, they're wanting to invest in one another. And for me, this is tremendously exciting. And there were three things that I told them, uh, just a, a kind of culture that I want to be a part of as a church and a men's group, uh, a culture of invitation. A culture of invitation is me willing to share my life with whoever. So it is, hey, come join me. Jesus would go, hey, come follow me. But he'd also go, hey, I'm coming to eat at your house. A culture of imitation is I want you to have access to my life and I'm going to have access to your life and we're going to build real community. The second thing is culture of investment. Every person in this place, you have something to offer. You have something to give, something that you've received from God, something you've discovered about him, something that you can give away to somebody else. So culture of imitation, uh, a culture of investment. But the third thing is a culture of imperative. I want to be about it. I'm tired of talking about stuff. Let's be about it. Let's be the church. Let's bring the kingdom. Let's have an expectation that God's going to do what God has promised. He's got a pretty good track record, by the way, that God will do what he says he'll do. 
So we are, man, we're, we're, we're co-laborers, we're fellow workers, we're a royal priesthood, all of these things. We have a responsibility as this restaurant, as this church, to make sure it's going outside the walls and we're making a difference in our community. How many know that Jesus is really personal? He'll find you in a crowd. Right? He has a way to bring it to our doorstep. He has a way to make himself known to us personally. Because it's easy for you to get lost in a a church this size. Right? To come in and kind of blend in. But God is really good about calling us out. Because he's, he's got this invitation. He wants to share his life with us. We find again that these religious leaders, you know, they're, they're probably mad because he's declaring that he's the son of God and they're, that they're mad because he's coming in as this king of peace and, and they're just frustrated. They're always trying to trap him and they have one more trap. And so they come to him and they try to butter him up and it, routinely, this is funny to me, a, a number of years ago I noticed this pattern And uh, people will come to me after a message and they'll go, ooh, I loved that message. So I listen and I go, thank you. And then they go, yeah, I believe the same thing. So here's what they're saying. That's what I believe. And because you lined up, I thought it was fantastic. (laughs) That's usually the way it works. So I don't get too high up or down if people like the message or not, because usually they like it because they agree with it. Let's keep going. It's just the truth. So they're trying to butter Jesus up. Oh, we know you're a great teacher. You always tell the truth. And since you always tell the truth, let's answer this one. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? What they're saying is this. There's, there's two, th- two sides. If you say we should pay taxes to Caesar, the common people are going to turn from you because they're already under the weight of Rome. It's not like the IRS. We pay enough taxes as it is, but they could come and charge you whatever they wanted at any time. And so they're saying, if we get him to say yes, the common people will turn from him. If he says no, Rome would come and kill him because they didn't tolerate any kind of rebellion. So here they are going, we've got him. He's got to answer. And Jesus is, of course, brilliant. He's amazing. And he says, give me a coin. And he holds it up and he says, whose face is on this coin? Caesar. Then pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay to God what is God's. I want to show a video because I think this will bring it home. The first thing I want to remind you of this is that we are told, according to the scriptures, prior to the resurrection story, that God is the author of human essence. God is the author in the essential nature of our humanity. We didn't come into being by accident. We just didn't suddenly appear unconceived or without any purpose in mind, but that God himself is the designer and brought us into existence. The psalmist says, when I see the heavens, the work of your hands, the sun and the moon and the stars which you have made, what is there in man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? This fact of our creation 
is a vital source in enabling us to understand what it means to be human. It's a vital source giving us the generality of our essence created in the image of God. <clears throat> Some of you have probably heard me mention this simple conversation between Jesus and the one who was questioning him, trying to pit him against uh, the Caesar. And he looked at Jesus and he said, is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? The one question I wish so desperately Jesus had answered differently. Then on April 15th, you could be godly and rebellious at the same time. <laughs> Jesus, so brilliant in his response, he says, give me a coin. And he took the coin and he says, whose image do you see on this? The man says, Caesar. Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The disingenuousness of the questioner is noticed in the fact that he did not come back with a second question. He should have said, what belongs to God? And Jesus would have said, whose image is on you? Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Give to God that which belongs to God. God's image is on you. Hey. If you don't know, that's Ravi Zacharias. And I will tell everybody that me and Ravi preached this Sunday morning. <laughs> Whose image is on you? It changes everything. God is so good about working your life out. About bringing redemption and, and healing to areas of your life. He wants access. There is no dream that, that is greater than what he has for you. And there's no hurt that he can't walk with you through. And we as humans, I'm, I'm just, the, the religious part of us keep Jesus at arm's length because we're afraid. Somebody came up to me, one of the ushers who were, he was in the first service and he said, I have been trained to be independent. I have been trained my whole life to do it on my own. This is difficult. And it is. Revelation three talks about Jesus stands at the door and he knocks and if you open the door, he comes in. And most of us in here, you're probably a Christian. You probably have relationship with God. And, and I, I love that. But my question is, what area does he not have access to? Because this is what it's about. Pastor Walt had made, you know, we've heard this several times now, but he had made a declaration that God had told him, this church is going to do more in the next eight years than the past 80 the only way that happens, church, are people who are surrendered to the Holy Spirit to do whatever God desires. And he wants access. And every person in this place has to play a role in that. If you're a Christian, your life is his. Your family, your dreams, your money, your time, your talents, your future, all of it. The question you have to ask yourself, if Jesus were here today, and he asked you the question, do I have the rights to your life or only part of it? And you're the only, 
only person who really knows that. And it is scary and it is difficult because we don't know what the future holds. But just like Pastor Walt, or, uh, Pastor Walt and then as he left and then Pastor Raphael, as he talked about palms up, this is what life is su- supposed to be like with God. We trust you. We surrender to you. We walk with you. In verse 17, Jesus talks about being a cornerstone. Cornerstone back then was this, this stone that um, had to be perfect. The lines had to be just right because everything was fitted around it and it had to be perfect. And he said, I am the cornerstone. Basically, he was saying this cornerstone, which you've rejected, religious people, you've rejected. Some are going to fall on it and they're going to be broken. But some out of rejection, it's going to fall on. It's going to crush every person in this room. You have to do something with Jesus. And it always leads to the truth so that we can be broken, broken of our pride, broken of our past, broken of our pain, broken of our junk so that God can walk us into healing and redemption and restoration. But there will always be those who reject it. And the Bible says every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Eventually, every person is going to have to do something with Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. There are people in this room that you have never made a decision to follow Jesus. You know God is dealing with your heart right now. He is Savior. You know that. And you need Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you of sin. To be the Lord and the Savior of your life. You lived independently of him, but you recognize that you've sinned and you need him to forgive you. Others in here, you, you've walked away from him. And you know you need to restore that relationship. You've cut him off. And now is the opportunity for that. So right now, all over this place, if you need to give your life to Jesus for the first time or you need to restore that relationship, admit that you've sinned, admit that you've done wrong, admit that you've pushed him away and you're going, Jesus, I need that restoration. I need that relationship again. I am sorry. I want you to raise your hand if that is you. All over this place, lift up your hand so we can see it. See that hand. See that hand. I 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 see that hand. You can put your hands down. In just a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to come forward. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to introduce you to a new family. rest of you, I want you to stand right now. Church, this is my question to you. What area, what areas have you not surrendered to Jesus? If we're actually going to see God do the things that he wants to do corporately as a church, but individually as well, there has to be a level of surrender that makes us really uncomfortable. That we're willing to go, man, I've, I've messed up or I don't have it all together, but I'm willing to give you my life and see what you'll do with it. 
This is our call, church. It's to take the gospel and take it outside the doors. But first, it begins with God doing something in us. So I want to pray over you. Father, thank you for the men and women of this church. Thank you for what you want to do in them. I pray, God, that you would give them such a trust and a peace to surrender areas or aspects of their life. Pray, God, that you would bring your life this overwhelming, fruitful, healing, delivering life that you promise us, God, and that you would begin to change their heart, restore them, God, and release your life through them. We pray blessings over them, favor over them. In Jesus' name, and all the church said, Amen and amen. I'm going to ask for the the altar team, prayer team to come forward at this time. If you raised your hand and you know that you need to tell somebody, I have rededicated my life or this is the first time I'm giving my life to Jesus. I want him to be Lord and Savior. I want you to come out of your seats. I know some of you guys have to walk all the way down here, but I want you to do it. It is a public declaration of faith. We love you. We're for you. We won't make you come up here and sing a solo. That's not the way it works, but we want you to be part of our family and you need to tell somebody the rest of you guys live the gospel. Give Jesus access. Let's turn Omaha, Nebraska upside down in Jesus name. God bless you guys.